we turn to the gospel as recorded by Luke, Luke chapter 22, Luke 22, begin to read at verse 52, Christ of course stands at the gate of the garden of Gethsemane and has just prayed If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Judas Iscariot has now appeared with his mob of temple guards and others, and they place him under arrest. 52, Jesus said unto the chief priests and captains of the temple and the elders which were come to him, be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves. When I was daily with you in the temple, ye stretched forth no hands against me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then took they him and led him and brought him into the high priest's house. And Peter followed afar off. And when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall and were set down together, Peter sat down among them. Now begins the text. But a certain maid beheld him as he sat by the fire and earnestly looked upon him and said, This man was also with him. And he denied him, saying, Woman, I know him not. After a little while, another saw him and said, Thou art also of them. And Peter said, Man, I am not. And about the space of one hour after another confidently affirmed, saying, Of a truth, this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter said, Man, I know not what thou sayest. And immediately, while he yet spake, the cock crew. And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him before the cock crow. And what? Christ said fully was before the cock crow twice. Thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. And the men that held Jesus mocked him and smote him. And when they had blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is it that smote thee? Many others, other things blasphemously spake they against him. And as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him into their council saying art thou the, the Christ that is art thou the promised Messiah that's what they're asking for us so art, art thou the promised Messiah tell us and he said unto them if I tell you ye shall will not believe and if I also ask you ye will not answer me nor let me go hereafter shall the son of man sit on the right hand of the power of God Then said they all, Art thou then the Son of God? And he said unto them, Ye say that I am. And they said, What need we any further witness? For we ourselves have heard him of his own mouth. And the whole multitude of them rose and led him unto Pilate. Thus far the reading of the gospel record. And our text consists of verses 56 through 62 of Luke 22. Whenever one deals with a 
passage that involves Simon Peter, there's always a danger and a concern. And the danger is that the preacher is so enamored by the character of Simon Peter that the focus ends up on the disciple more than upon his Lord. And the concern is that the audience, the congregation, is more interested in this Simon Peter with his large, expansive, impulsive, impetuous personality than with Simon Peter's Lord. Oh no, oh now, oh good. Another sermon about Simon Peter. No, beloved, not about Simon Peter. Simon Peter is involved. But a sermon concerning Simon Peter's Savior and Lord. Simon Peter's Savior and Lord has frequently used men of large, expansive, impetuous personalities in his service and used them well. I give you another name whose first name was Martin. And you give me his last name. A certain German called Luther with his large, expansive, impetuous personality. And what's Luther going to say next? And how is he going to respond next in his characteristic way? But commonly, when Christ uses such men of such character, he first cuts them down to size, lest they end up stealing center stage, so to speak, and maybe even due to character, demand and want to demand too much of the attention. This Simon Peter, if he was going to be of use to Christ Jesus in the gospel ministry had to be cut down to size. He had to learn a proper self-assessment, namely that he was not superior to all the rest, a cut above. You, Lord Jesus, can always depend upon Put your reliance on me, Jesus of Nazareth, because I'll always be there for you. He had to learn, no, Simon Peter, not Jesus relying on you. Your need for him and need to rely upon him every step of the way. 
What you have here, beloved, is a most illuminating incident and incidents. This is illuminating concerning Simon Peter and his character representing other disciples of Jesus Christ, namely, how sinful a disciple's nature can show it to, to be, and how full, full of faults and flaws and shortcomings. Illuminating. To fall this low, really? How illuminating. But especially, beloved, this passage is illuminating concerning Peter's Lord, our Savior and Lord, who it was that he could love, and not only could love, but did love, and what he was willing to endure on the behalf of those whom he so loved. Willing to endure as the man of sorrows who was rejected and despised and acquainted with grief. As the one who was the object of hatred and venom by the ungodly, and as if that was not enough, betrayed by one of his own, and then add to that, forsaken by all of the rest for all of their confession of him. And finally, this culminating wound. I know not the man. Now, you don't read that phrase as such in Luke, but that's the phrase that you read in Matthew, where we read, After a little while came to him them that stood by and said to Peter, Surely thou art one of them, for thy speech betrayeth thee. Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man. Notice, the man. Not Jesus as the Son of God. Not this is my Lord and this is my Savior. He doesn't even seem to know his name. Who are you talking about? Who is Jesus of Nazareth? I know not the man. That's all he is, just a man? You know very well, beloved, he's more, much more than just a man. Nonetheless, this Jesus was also, as the Son of God, who so loved his people, willing to be the Son of Man. And the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And the end, this history in which this denial is part of, this history, of course, revolves about Jesus of Nazareth as the man of sorrows, doesn't it? What he was willing to endure at the hands and the mouth and the fists of the ungodly for the sake of those whom he so loved. But as well, beloved, what he was willing to endure in order to preserve one who was in the process of denying him. 
while one whom he loved was in the process of denying him. This Jesus was in the process of giving his life for him and laying down his life. Peter said, I know not the man. Beloved, do you know him? I don't ask whether you know about him. I ask, do you know him in love? Are you willing to be identified with him? Even if in the next few days it may cost you. Maybe your status. Maybe a friendship. Maybe a certain recognition. Are you willing for his sake to count that cost? Because I'll tell you something in the end, beloved. It will be worth it. In the end, it will be worth it. Jesus himself, you know, made that known in the gospel record to Simon Peter, when on an occasion Simon Peter stated, but we have, all fors- we have all forsaken many things for thy sake, Lord, to follow thee. We've forsaken much, Lord, for your sake. And Christ responded by saying, everyone that hath forsaken houses, brethren, sisters, father, mother, wife, children, for my sake, by namesake, shall receive an hundredfold. See, as if the knowledge of his love is not enough, but even Nonetheless, God adds to that other incentives. He throws in under other incentives as well, having to do with the recompense even to our confessing him before men and in this life. Christ Jesus, beloved, a friend, a friend when all other friends fail. And that's what comes to light in this passage, as we must see. So lifting the phrase from Matthew's gospel, the theme will be, I know not the man. Friendship denied, painful self-knowledge gained. And God be thanked a record and a relationship preserved. A friendship denied. To set the scene, of course, for this incident is not so difficult, is it? You know your Bible history. This follows hard upon the heels of what has transpired in the Garden of Gethsemane in the aftermath. Christ has allowed himself to be arrested and bound and led to the house in the end of the high priest. Not simply allowed in the end, but he has orchestrated this, hasn't he? He's at the Garden of Gethsemane because he knew that Judas Iscariot would know where to find him. And it's he that has sent Judas Iscariot out that night to do his devilish work in the upper room, as you well know. 
is prior to distributing the Lord's Supper, what we call the Lord's Supper. He announces, one of you is going to betray me this night. And they're not sure what in the world he has in mind. It, you, don't, you don't think it's me, Lord. You don't think it's me, Lord. And then John asks him at Peter's beckoning, because John is sitting right next to him, who does he have in mind? And Jesus says, the one to whom I push this, this sop. And he pushes it to Judas Iscariot, who's on his left, and says, what thou doest, do now. In other words, your conspiracy is known. I know exactly what you have been up to. Implying Judas Iscariot, if you want those 30 pieces of silver, you better do it now. Because knowing what I know, I could easily just walk away and you would never find me and you would have been dismissed from the band. Now is your time. You better seize it now. And Judas Iscariot does some calculating and he wants those silver, 30 pieces of silver, and he goes off into the night to inform Caiaphas, finally use the phrase, the gig is up. The knowledge is there. The conspiracy is not secret. Jesus is well aware of it. And if you're going to use me, you have to use me tonight, now. He knocks on Caiaphas' door, informs him of the exposure of the conspiracy, and Caiaphas does some calculating and he says, then we'll do it tonight. And he gives to Judas Iscariot, these, these guards and this mob, sends them with Judas Iscariot to find Jesus. And he sends messengers out to gather the Sanhedrin, as you well know. And so Judas Iscariot collects Christ, and Christ allows himself to be bound and taken, eventually to the house of the high priest, while Caiaphas is gathering the Sanhedrin. According to the Gospel of John, they don't go first to the high priest's house. Luke just speaks of the high priest's residence. John tells us there was a stopping place before they get to the house, the residence of Caiaphas. They go first to the residence of Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And these two, of course, they work hand in glove. They are of a similar devilish, self-righteous sort. And they are stalling for time because, of course, this was not the night that they had in their plans. They were going to wait till the Passover was finished and the great multitudes of the nation of Israel had dispersed into their various provinces and perhaps even sailed for home in different parts of the Mediterranean Sea. And then when Jesus would go someplace in some isolated place alone, Judas Iscariot would inform them and they would send assassins and they would slay Christ Jesus and pretend that no one really knew who, who it was and no one would have to fess up and it would be done and taken care of. But in secret, not when the whole of the nation was present and somehow in a public fashion, the last of their desires, but it's thrust upon them by Christ and now they have to decide, they have to make decisions. What's the charge going to be and how in the world are we going to involve Rome and convince Rome to do our will? So first to the house of residence of Annas, and while they're there waiting for about an hour, of course they do their mocking and their jeering and their physical assaults and all, all the rest. And then the news comes that the Sanhedrin has been gathered and Caiaphas in his residence is waiting for them and they take Jesus bound to the residence of Caiaphas. And that's in the shape of a horseshoe, of course, his residence, and across the the aperture, there's a fence, and in the 
middle of the fence, there is this gate that is manned by a damsel. And it's upon this scene that two disciples find themselves. Peter comes, but also we are informed that John has accompanied him, or maybe it's Peter who has accompanied John, because the gospel as recorded by John says, and Simon Peter followed Jesus. Now, Caiaphas is he who gave counsel to the Jews. He's the high priest that year. And Simon Peter followed Jesus. This is John 18, verse 15. And so did another disciple. That disciple was known to the high priest. John never names himself by name, of course. He's always that other disciple, or the disciple Jesus loves. That disciple was known to the high priest and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. They are related somehow, John and the priestly family. Perhaps John's mother was of the tribe of Levi. But he's known by the family of the, of the high priest, probably being related. And when he comes to the gate, the damsel at the gate recognizes him and gives him access. And then John will go immediately into the interrogation room where the Sanhedrin is putting questions to Christ and trying to come up somehow with, the, with these charges. That's why we have eyewitness accounts and, and we can have a record in the gospel account of the, the exchanges and the conversation. John himself was the, was the eyewitness. But as he stands there for a while, he remembers that Peter stood at the door without. So went out that other disciple who was known unto the high priest and spake to her that kept the door and brought in Peter. She opens the gate for Peter at, at uh, John's request and he goes into the courtyard. John goes immediately back into the interrogation room to continue to witness this kangaroo court and as they try to trump up charges against Christ and what their strategy is going to be. And Peter not being quite that bold to go into that room, goes towards the fire. And as he goes toward the fire, that damsel goes with him, and as he gets by the fire, earnestly looks upon him and says, huh, this man also was with him. This man also was one of his disciples. Now you understand, she probably does not mean this maliciously. She's simply stating a fact, a bit of information. And those about the fire, of course, her, hear her as she makes this announcement. But Peter doesn't read it simply as a piece of information. He is going to lose his anonymity, and he is filled with a fear that whatever they're going to do to his Lord and Master, if they find out he's one of the disciples, they're going to charge him likewise. And so, as she announces his identity, he denies and saying, Woman, I know him. I don't know who you're talking about, and I have no interest in this Jesus of Nazareth, whomever he may be. He lies. Flat out. We're told in the gospel accounts it doesn't take very long, and he, according to Matthew, wanders just a little ways away from the, from the fire, and another comes to him a little while after and says, Thou art also of them. What we heard back in the fire wasn't misinformation. I look you over, and uh, I'm convinced she had it right. You're one of his 
disciples. And we're told, of course, by Luke that he denies him once again in the gospel as recorded by Matthew. We, we read even that he says that he, de, he denies, denies it with an oath in verse 72 of Matthew 26. I don't know the man, he says it with an oath. Meaning probably he has added some swear words here, some damnations. So that's the second lie and the second denial. The question arises, of course, when you have lied and then someone is going to expose you in your lie, how are you going to cover it? How are you going to respond? There's two ways, you know, to cover a lie. There's one that is the proper covering, which is, of course, the covering of admission, confession, and a beseeching for a forgiveness. Or there is the attempt to cover it by another lie. Children may know something of that. I understand that a few months back, there were floods in this area, which meant there was water rushing about here and there. And I'm sure there were mothers who were telling their little boy, stay away from that rushing water. And what if one of you had said, okay, I'll stay away, and then you went out of the house. But there's that rushing water, and it's fascinating. And you went down to that rushing water and stood pretty near to the, to the banks, and maybe a friend joined you down there. And then you hear the call to supper after a little while, and you run back to the house, and you have to take your boots off. And your mother says, that mud on your boots, were you down by the river after all? Oh, no, mother, I wouldn't go down to the river. No, I didn't go down there. Oh, okay. And you sit down. And then once you know it, you have a lousy sister who says, Tony, I saw you down by the, the river with, with William, your friend, didn't I? Kind of innocently. What are you going to say? Yeah, I was down by that rushing water. Or are you going to say, I don't know who you saw, but it wasn't me. And it may be William, but it wasn't me. I wasn't down there because you've lied to your mother. You're going to admit it? And where's it going to stop if you decide to lie? How does the poet put it? Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Where is the end of the lies? Because you know that lousy sister of yours is probably going to talk to, to William and say, was Tony with you? And he's going to say, oh, yeah, Tony was with me. And now where are you at? Peter decides on the latter course of action. He's going to lie himself out of this, he thinks, to save his skin. So he tells the second lie and the second denial. And then we're told by the Gospel of Luke that about the, the space of one hour goes by before another confidently affirms, saying, of a truth, this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. In other words... They stand there, and Peter waits, and the trial has proceeded, or the interrogation, and the Sanhedrin has come to a conclusion. They're going to charge him for their own sake of their own law, blasphemy, which makes him worthy of death by their own law, and they're going to go to Pontius Pilate, and they are going to involve Rome, which they must do if they're going to 
be able to have the, the right to execute him because, of course, Rome would not allow these miserable Jews to have trials to execute people because the next thing you know they would be doing is seizing hold of their soldiers and trying their soldiers and finding them guilty of this or that breaking of their law and have them executed. So if that was going to be executed, you had to have the approval of Rome and the judge of Rome, her governor, Pontius Pilate, because if you took it into your own hands, you would be the next one who was going to be executed, and they know that well. And so they must somehow persuade Rome to allow them to do their devilish work. And they have decided they have an avenue, and they will charge him with insurrection. That's what we read, you know. We read through verse 1 of 23, and then we read in verse 2 of 23 of Luke, they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is king. In other words, this man is going to have insurrection. He's going to lead a rebellion, and here all the nation is, and it's our patriotic day, and the next thing we're going to have rebellion in the streets, Pilate. What are you going to do about it? You better execute him. You better allow us to execute him. And then the next thing out of their mouth is, and if you don't, we will stir up insurrection, and you'll have violence through the city, and you won't last so very long, Pilate, will you? They have leverage. They have decided on their plan of action. And having made the decision that they will now involve Rome and Rome's governor in order to get him to the cross, the death by crucifixion, they lead him across the courtyard through the gate. They're going to lead him down the streets to the residence, the palace of Pontius Pilate. And as they do that, as they lead Jesus across that courtyard of Caiaphas, past the fire that's burning there, three things happen. Right about that time, another takes it into his head and confidently affirms, saying, of a truth. This fellow was also with him. He's been denying it. We've heard him deny it twice. But this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. And the reason Luke says it's done with a confidence is because this man could personally identify himself. We read in the Gospel of John that one of the servants of the high priest, being his kinsman whose ear Peter cut off, saith, didn't I see thee in the garden with him? I was there. You're the fellow that took the sword out of his sheath and proceeded to hack away at the head of one of our men. I recognize you. Don't deny it. And Peter denies again, only as we have read, he not only denies it, but according to the Gospel of Matthew, does it with cursing and with swearing. He begins to say a number of blasphemous words of damnations and who knows what, and then the rest of them join in. One fellow says, I recognize you. I was there. I'm related to the one whose ear you chopped off. And when Peter denies it, the others say, but you talk like a Galilean. We can tell by your accent. You may be denied all you, all you will. We know because the band of this Jesus was a band of Galileans. You are one of his. And then he begins to add oaths to it. You bring God into the picture. 
in the name of God as my witness, I swear to you, I don't know the man, and you may do whatever you jolly well please to the man. I don't care. In God's name, he brings God as the God of truth to validate his lie. He stoops and falls that low. And then, beloved, two things happen in quick succession as he finishes his rant and denial and swears by an oath, bringing God into the picture, he may judge me as worthy of damnation. I don't care. I don't know him. The rooster crows on cue. Hatched from an egg, you know, a year or so before, exactly with this purpose in mind. All events great and small, used by God to his own end, for his own purpose. And the rooster crows on cue, just as Christ foretold. And he, of course, introduces a new day, the dawning of a new day. And it's a day that we will know as Good Friday. One may say, why in the world call it Good Friday? because it's the day of greatest evil and deviltry, isn't it? When the one who was the righteous one of the whole human race receives the animosity of the whole of the world represented and they put him to death, even though the judge himself washes his hands and says, I find no fault in the man. Not only just crucifixion, beloved, what is a murder and murder with a venom and the whole of the world showing its enmity against the Son of God, the righteous one himself. Evil Friday. Evil Friday, wouldn't you say? And yet we call it Good Friday. And for a reason, of course, because it's this greatest evil that Jehovah God will work in the end for the greatest good when it has to do with the salvation of the remnant that is beloved by the same Lord Jesus. That, first of all, the rooster on cue crows. And then this, and this is why I selected the Luke 22 passage. And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. Christ Jesus is being led away. He's going to go through that gate heading for the palace of, of Pontius Pilate, knowing that the sentence will be sounded. I will head him to the cross under the wrath of God, friend and lover, fully departed. Knowing that full well, he stops, he pauses. In the midst of his anguish, his mind is on Simon Peter, knowing what has just occurred. And he looks for Peter, and he finds Peter, and he looks at him. How do you suppose? Anger? A glare of wrath? In my need, this is how you have treated me, Peter? You have turned your back on me? Well, the time has come. Now that I know you for who you are, 
I turn my back on you too. Now, you know that's not how he looked at his beloved disciple. He looks upon Peter with a wounded love. Peter, what have you done? What have you done? What have you said? And I, in the time of my deepest need, all have forsaken me. And now you, too, this is the, un the unkindest cut of all. You wound me to my heart. And he turns to do what, beloved? To lay down his life for that one who has just denied him, Simon Peter. I know not the man. Beloved, is that friendship? I know not the man. Christ Jesus has looked at Simon Peter and basically said, Simon Peter, I still know you. And I'm heading for the cross with you on my mind. Simon Peter says, I know not the man. That's friendship. We're friends, you know, as long as things go, go well. And that somehow my association with you isn't going to somehow affect my status. But if something happens in which your reputation is tainted or, or lost, then you understand I have to look out for number one. I have to take care of myself and my status in the community and in, in the family. So we're going to have to be done with each other. You realize that it's going to come to that. I, I, I'll be your friend as long as it's a mutual value. But if being your friend is going to cost me too much, well, you know how it is. That's friendship. You know very well that's not friendship. It's when your friend is being, who knows, beset upon this way than the other, that you say to the friend, I will do all that I can to support you and stand for your name and help you in any way I can, even if it means that it's going to affect my status and my standing with this one or that one, because we are friends. Nonetheless, beloved, understand something and understand something well. Friendship does not mean this. No matter what you have done, no matter what you have said, I'm going to approve of it. And you may be sure, because you're my friend, I will never do anything or say anything that may cause you any pain. Beloved, there's a scripture passage, you know, faithful are the wounds of a friend. There is a time when a friend must even say to a friend, I must say something that's going to give you pain, or I must behave now in a certain way that's going to give you pain, but I do it, of course, with your well-being in mind. Be assured of that. Nonetheless, this is going to be painful for both of us, but I must do it because I love you. An instance, a, a parent, and your house goes up in flames, and you rescue your child from the flames. It has started perhaps in his bedroom, a little six or seven year old, and you carry that little child out, but he has experienced who knows how many burdens upon his body, and of course you take him to the hospital, and they look him over, 
and they deal with him and try to take care of the pain. And then on the next day they say, he's been rather severely burned. We're going to have to do some skin grafting. And that's a painful, painful process. Cutting of skin from this part of the body and the scraping away of the old skin any number of times to replant it with new skin. Your son needs new skin, but it has to be in the way of this painful, painful process. Sign here on this line that we have your permission, and you sign it on the line, and you go into your son's little boy's room, and you say, my son, this has to take place for your well-being. I'll be here but you're going to have skin that's going to be scraped away because you need new skin if you're going to be healthy and live. Peter, beloved, had a new heart, but he needed new skin. He had to have a change of character, didn't he? He had to have the change of the estimation of himself with respect to his Lord, not only, but with respect to others as well, because you know as well as I do, he had too high an estimation of himself. Mark chapter 14, Jesus says, All of you shall be offended because of me. This night I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. After that I'm risen, I will go before you into Galilee. But Peter says to him, Although all shall be offended, and let's not be surprised if that happens, Jesus, yet will not I. Jesus said to him, Verily I say to thee that this day, even this night before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. But Peter spake the more vehemently, saying, If I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any ways. In any way. That was Peter's testimony. That was his estimation of himself, but of the others. The others probably will. You and I can pretty much imagine that, Jesus. But you know me. I won't. You see, he has to be given over to temptation, doesn't he? He has to suffer a lamentable fall. It's Peter's choice, indeed. It's Peter's choice to deny his Lord three times. But it's God's will to give him over to that temptation. As we read another, I could read another, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith fail not. And God gives him over to this temptation, and he suffers this lamentable fall because he has to learn a certain new self-assessment, self-evaluation. And as I say, not only with respect to himself and certain weaknesses he has in his own character, but his evaluation of others. That you know, I'm a cut above other spiritually. You all recognize that, I'm sure. The rest of you confronted by this temptation are likely to fall, but not me. I'll stand. That was Simon Peter. Not only a high self-estimation of self, but a rather demeaning estimation of others, what they and you are likely to do, unlike me, 
who are of a higher spiritual caliber. Now you tell me how a man like that is going to serve as an apostle and bring the gospel as a sinner to sinners. He's going to bring the gospel as one who is a step above, a cut above all the rest? Or is he going to bring the gospel as one who says you need the cross and I need the cross as badly as you? And I'm going to the cross and I call you to follow me to the foot of the cross to seek our salvation in the name that is like no, none other name. Peter had to become that kind of a man, didn't he? And he has to undergo this lamentable fall to learn this concerning himself. One may ask why he's so susceptible and may say, well, he has too high a self-estimation, too high an evaluation of himself with regard to others. But there's this too, beloved. It wasn't that Simon Peter lacks natural courage. That's not Simon Peter's weakness. He's not a man who lacks natural courage. In the garden, beloved, there was one man who had the courage to draw the sword and willing to take the whole of the band on, and it was Simon Peter, not the rest of them. You put a sword in the hand of Simon Peter, and he said, let me at him, Lord, I'll defend thee to the death. And then Jesus says, put it away, Simon. Live by the sword, die by the sword. And when it came to following Jesus to the edifice, the residence of Caiaphas, there was only two men. One was John, the other was Simon Peter. The rest who fled stood away. And yet here, he falls. Why? Because he was not ready, beloved, to bear the reproach of Christ and simply to suffer the reproach of Christ without responding to those who treated him in an evil way. Allow me, Lord, to defend myself. Then I can stand for you. And if I can return evil for evil, well, I'm good at that. They call me names, I can call them names back. They strike out to me, I can strike back. But you expect me just to stand here and to receive it? And then mind you, really, I'm to do good for the evil. They assault me with evil. And I'm supposed to respond with good. That's what Christianity is all about. Well, guess what? That's not me. I opt out. I want no part of that. I'm not simply going to receive reproach and abuse and have to simply suffer it and speak good in return for the evil. Beloved, whose nature is that? Is it the nature of our children? You know how much teachers have to teach children as they interact? As some are not treated well, how do you respond? It's not natural, is it? They spit at you, well, spit back. That's natural. But to receive it and to speak good, I love that takes grace and grace and more grace. And the point is, beloved, Peter had not sought that grace. It's 
striking that in the Garden of Gethsemane, you have a certain exchange in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus prays, he says that he will submit to the cup that the Father has given him as he has prayed. And he cometh and he findeth them sleeping in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And he saith to Peter, notice, singles Peter out, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldst not thou watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh, your flesh, is weak. Peter has been told he's going to deny his Lord. Oh, no, Lord, not me. I won't forsake you. I won't deny you. I'll lay my life down for you. Who needs prayer? I'm Peter the rock. I can stand on my own. You'll see. And he does not pray. And he's wide open, beloved, to this temptation. And he learns that he is just like all the rest. His own weaknesses, his own frailties. He's not a cut above. And he is as much in need of his Savior's grace and the operations of the Holy Spirit that come via prayer as every other child of God. Beloved, is that not so? Have we learned the lesson? Do we know this? I pray that you and I will learn it not by bitter experience like Simon Peter, but lay this history to heart and let him, let him be our instruction and our lesson concerning self and our need for prayer day by day, and the operations of the Spirit that Christ by his precious blood has earned for us. In conclusion, I want to point out that this is a wonderful record that has been preserved along with a relationship. I say it's a wonder because this involves the name of a man with a lamentable sin. And it's in the scriptures and it's found in all four gospels without, you might say, any reservations. You have it in Mark, for instance. And Mark was close to Peter. We know that from various historical realities. Mark wasn't even really one of the 12 disciples, but a young man that followed Jesus and he was the friend of Peter, and that Simon Peter would give certain instructions to, to Mark, and Mark learned something, certain things from Peter that the, the others didn't even, even know. And you can imagine when Mark has to write the gospel and he comes to this part of the history of Christ's arrest and trial, and there's his beloved friend and apostle Peter, and now he must write down black on white, the denials of Peter and the sin of Peter and how lamentable was his fall and preserve it for the knowledge of the whole of the church. Imagine, beloved, imagine you're, you're, a, young, you're a young person and you fall into some sexual sin and your mother in the Christmas letter decides to write about it. 
She wants you to know them to know that you were guilty of the sexual. But you've been forgiven, of course, but she wants them to know that. Really? You had to put that in the letter, Mother? You couldn't spare me? Does everybody have to know that? Mark, I could imagine, would say, look, tell you what, Peter, I'll just put down, and one of the disciples appeared on the scene and denied his, his Lord. And I'll just be, if you will, ambiguous. We'll just make it as ambiguous as, as possible and send it out that way. One of the disciples denied his Lord, not once, but three times, just as Jesus predicted one of them would. And Peter would have said, oh no, write it as it occurred. And my name must be affixed. I'm the one, not the rest of them. I'm the one who denied my Lord. Because it's not my name in the end that's important here. It's the name of the Lord Jesus who was willing to go to the cross for me while I did not know him, yet still knew me. And not only knew me as he looked at me, but on the cross said to his father, Father, on behalf of my beloved disciple, I pray, and do not condemn him, do not destroy him, but with thy fist smash me and treat me as the one who has blasphemed and treat me as the one who has cursed thy name and made that oath that no man should make. And I will receive it on his behalf, Lord, because though he professed not to know me, I know him. I know him by name, and I love him. And Lord, Father, he must be preserved at all cost, even at the cost of my own life. That, Lord Jesus, beloved, preserved, friendship preserved. Because though Peter denied him, Christ never, never forgot his beloved disciple, nor one of his people. The rooster crowed. That's the beginning, you know, of a new day. But understand when that rooster crowed, it's the beginning, not only of a new day, but it's the beginning, really, of the whole of eternal life. It's the beginning of a new creation. The day, I should say the first day of the new creation. To undo what Adam and Eve had brought upon creation. They had brought upon creation death, hadn't they? The rooster crows the first day when death is going to be turned to life. It's on this day that the seed of the woman is planted in the grave, isn't it? He is planted in the grave. And what happens to seeds that are planted in the grave, in the earth? It's going to happen this spring, isn't it? They germinate and they spring up unto life. Christ Jesus, the seed of the woman, is planted in the grave this Good Friday with a view to resurrection morning, what we call Easter. And he arises with healing in his wings. And in that connection, I want to conclude 
by reminding you something from Mark chapter 16. When on the first day of the week, the angels speak to the woman, be not affrighted. He seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. <clears throat> He's not here. He is risen. Behold the place where they laid him. Now, now this. And go your way and tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. And that's the message they run with to that room, which is again the upper room, which is probably the house of John Mark and his mother who were wealthy. And they come with news. The disciples are gathered there. And the women say, we have news, we have news. We can hardly believe the good news, the grave, the, the sepulcher is empty. And angels appear to us. And they have a message to t that we are to tell you. And the message is this, that we are to tell you and Peter that he's going before you into Galilee. And Simon Peter sits there and he says, would you say that again? What did you say? Yes, Peter, he said, tell the disciples and Peter. He hasn't forgotten your name, Peter. We know, we heard that you have denied him and you are weeping bitterly. You wept bitterly and you think maybe you're lost, you're lost, you're lost. His word is, and Peter. You're still his, Simon Peter. He has laid down his life for his friend, beloved. Do you know him? The friend who was the friend when all other friends fail. To know him is the greatest of benefits, is it not? Amen. For thy word we give thee thanks, for thy remembrance, for thy mercies, for the gift of thy son and his great love. For as a friend, he laid down his life for his friends. And so the likes of us might be saved, made whole, and have the spirit to confess his name. In Jesus' name, amen.